we come now to a new chapter in our story. It is a chapter that follows on the message at the end of chapter 2. As the church of Jesus Christ lives out their commitment to their Lord. Our text this morning will be chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. If you would please give attention to the reading of God's Word. The Word of the Lord is inerrant. It is authoritative. And it is sufficient. Acts chapter 3. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand, and raised him up. And immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all of the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's ask for his blessing upon his word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you that you have indeed given to us this, your word. We pray, Lord, that you would, by your Holy Spirit, illumine our minds, that you would make application of your word to our lives, that you would cause it to grow deeply in us, that it would build up our relationships, especially, Lord, our relationship with you through the Lord Jesus Christ. We ask all of this. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, Acts chapter 3 is a prototype for church ministry. It is just how the church should conduct its ministry. Now, I don't mean the fancies that some take it to, expecting that they are some kind of itinerant healers walking around healing people here and there and having power and notoriety and Rolexes and private jets. No, I don't mean that at all. The healing, in a sense, is completely incidental to this story. It is something that once again draws attention to the Word of God, the power of God, and the kingdom of God. And so this morning, I would like us to see the church's emphasis, the church's mission, because it is our mission beloved. It is the mission of Christ's church. First, I would like us to see 
that the church of Jesus Christ at the time of Peter and John was a church that had mission emphasis. It had mission emphasis. And then secondly, it was a church that had miracle power, power that had come from the sovereign God. And then finally, it was a church that was focused upon and was seeing the Messiah's kingdom established, prefigured, and in their midst. So let's see then the mission emphasis we are to have, the miracle power that God provides even today in His power, and the fact that the Messiah's kingdom is something that we should long for, but also experience today. Well, this is a church that had great mission emphasis. Acts is a book of narrative. It is essentially stories that many of us have heard time and time again from Sunday school days. And I'd like to lay that out for you a bit. Let's not forget chapter 2 when we're in chapter 3. Remember the background here. This is a church that had been gathered together, that had been terrified after a sort, huddled together, waiting for power and the promise to come. The promise of the Holy Spirit from the Lord Jesus Christ. And that Holy Spirit came upon them. God's Holy Spirit empowering them to speak in tongues, but even greater power empowering them with boldness to speak and preach the gospel. And that is exactly what Peter did in chapter 2. Acts could well be called the Acts and Sermons of the Apostles. For there are ten full sermons in this book. We've seen one. We'll see another next week by Peter. But Peter took the boldness that the Holy Spirit had given to him and he applied the Word of God. He applied the Old Testament to the situation at hand and applied it to the lives of his hearers, calling on them to believe and to repent. And you know the result of that. Fully 3,000 were saved. The best church growth program you could ever imagine. You know I am with math, but it's something like 3,000% growth. Someone will correct me later. 120, 3,000, it's a lot of growth. And now this body of believers is even larger. And we might expect, perhaps, that they would be satisfied with that. That's good church growth for a year. That's good church growth for 10 years. Maybe they should rest a bit. Make sure they're prepared. Before they do anything else, maybe they should uh, take a few courses and lectures on apologetics before they practice it. No, they were learning and doing at the same time as Peter was teaching. They were acting and practicing. And they were a people who were together. And at the end of chapter 2, we see Luke describe it, that they were a people who were steeped in prayer. Everything that they did was steeped in prayer. This is the first lesson for us. Do we pray over not only missions conferences, but workdays? Do we pray over not only graduations, but do we pray over each day and week of school? Do we pray over not only big, large decisions like moving or buying a home, but little things like how we will instruct our children, how we will encourage our spouse? You see, the early church was known for that. They were known for prayer. And they were also known for worship. You see, they were daily, remember, in Acts 2, in the temple. And they worked together. And God did wondrous things in their midst. 
Luke tells us this. We see it here in chapter 43, or chapter 2, verse 43. Many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And it's as if Luke had children. Because if you said to your children, well, you know, many signs and wonders were done, the first question you'll get is, like what? Which ones? What did it look like? Describe it for me. You know you've had your children ask these questions. They ask them so often that you say, please, just stop for a minute. And Luke understands that we want to know this. And so in chapter 3, he gives us an example of one of these mighty signs and wonders. And don't forget that this sign and wonder is in the midst of what we saw in the church community at the end of chapter 2. You see, so many so-called preachers want to rip this section of Acts out of its context and make it only about how they can do spectacular things. It is not. It is about how the church of Jesus Christ is gathered together, praying, worshiping, witnessing, and God is doing mighty things in their midst. And so what they do is they go up, Peter and John, to the temple. It's emphatically, no matter where you are in the city, you go up to the temple. Have you ever had that kind of a conversation with someone? I I mistake that because I'm from Buffalo. So I will speak to my parents in Michigan and say, you know, we're coming down to you. And she'll say, no, you're not. You're going up when I get my geography mixed. Perhaps it's like my math. This was really true with the temple because the temple was not only theologically the center of Israel's life, it was on the temple mount. It dominated the scene. The temple that was built here by Herod took fully 60 or 70 years to build. You thought you've ever been a part of a slow building project. 60 or 70 years, many, many blocks. The temple itself was so splendid overlaid with gold, that if you looked at it from the wrong direction at the wrong time of day, you would be blinded by the sun reflecting off the gold. And so Peter and John are going up, and they're going up at the ninth hour, Luke tells us, the ninth hour from sunrise, here being 3 p.m. And this is important. There are details in the Bible for our edification and learning. The ninth hour is the hour of prayer, as Luke says here in verse 1. And this is a bit instructive. Some of you may wonder, for example, why we as Christ Church bother to have an evening service, especially when so many churches do not. It is not mandated by the Bible, but it is after a biblical pattern. You see, biblical worship in the Old Testament, which is still occurring here in Peter and John's day, there was a morning and an evening sacrifice, a morning and an evening time of prayer, 9 a.m. and 3 p.m. It was when the sacrifice was offered in the temple by the priest, the daily sacrifice. And so Peter and John are going up to worship just as they always have. They're going to pray. They're not going to offer up sacrifices because they know that Jesus Christ is the one and only sacrifice. But they want to be with God's people so badly that they go up into the temple in the late afternoon to pray with God's people. Do you have that kind of a yearning to be with God's people? Is worship a duty for you? 
have to get the kids ready and together, have to get them out here, make sure you're not too late, have to be able to do what you need to do on Sunday to get it over with, to get on with the rest of the day. I trust not. I trust that for you, worship is an experience in which you yearn to be with your Lord. You yearn to be with the Lord's people, with your people. And that's why we gather together morning and evening to be with God's people, to pray, to hear his word. It's part of our habit. And they come across this man. He is lame. He has no ability to walk. And this is where we begin to see that Luke is a physician. Because you see, Luke wants us to know exactly what is wrong with this man. Perhaps you have known someone who has difficulty walking or is unable to walk. Perhaps they were in an automobile accident or they had some sort of disease come upon them. But you see, that's not the case with our man here in chapter 3. Luke tells us specifically that he was a man lame from birth. The phrase that he uses is actually very vivid. He says he was lame from his mother's womb. He never knew a day in which he walked. He had no idea what walking was like. He had never done it. He had always been lame. He had been crippled his entire life. Now, not paralyzed because he could use his hands, his arms. He could turn and look, but he was unable to walk. He has never known anything else. Have you ever felt like that? Perhaps not crippled in legs and ankles and feet, but crippled in that you were unable to do certain things and you'd never known anything different. Perhaps for you, you have been crippled in relationships, unable to relate to others. Perhaps you have been crippled with worry, crippled with anxiety. You see, it's a difficult thing to carry that burden and to not have any real hope, to not know anything different. There are times, I think, where you, like me, feel incomplete, feel useless. We are a bit like this lame man. But this lame man was not, praise be to God, without friends. Because, you see, he had faithful friends. They would carry him every day to the temple. Each and every day, day by day, they would take him and put him in front of this gate. Now, we don't know everything about the friends. Perhaps some of them had altruistic motives. Perhaps some of them got a cut of the begging. We don't know, but every single day they brought him here. And they're not, in this sense, unlike the friends of the paralytic. You remember that scene where they let him down through the roof so that he could get to be with Jesus? That's how fast the friends they were. You see, this man was never able to enter the temple proper. If we think about the temple, it is a great wall in which there is a court called the court of the Gentiles in which anyone who is visiting the city or the Roman guards could go. And then inside there, going up steps, would be the court of the women. That's where the Jewish women could come and worship. And no Gentiles were allowed upon pain of death. And of course, beyond that would be the court of the men. And then the Holy of Holies. But you see, this man was forbidden from going even into the temple of the Jewish women, the court of the women. Because you see, it was forbidden in the law to let a lame man go there. So the closest he could get to worshiping with God's people was sitting by the gate, begging. 
And it was a beautiful gate that he would buy. His friends chose wisely. It was called the Corinthian Gate in other places. It was 75 feet high and 60 feet wide. Josephus tells us it took 20 men to close it. It was overlaid with gold and bronze and fabulous handiwork. It was the perfect place to beg for money. Because you see, the most fashionable people, the people with the most wealth would be coming through here. It would be a well-traveled gate. And what better place to go than to go to a place where the Pharisees would go by and seek to give their alms before everyone else, shouting as they put money in the bucket. See how pious I am. I gave him $100. Oh, no, I gave him $200. It's a good business decision for our lame man. But Peter and John are not interested in this at the time. They're just coming in to pray. And Peter and John are coming in together. One thing that you need to see here and then throughout Acts is that Peter and John are partners. They're fast friends. They work together. They're not concerned which of them gets greater glory. They're not concerned which of them has more converts or which of them has a better place in the church, First Presbyterian Church of Jerusalem. No. They work together. It's often thought that when Peter asks our Lord, what will become of John? It's not a question merely of curiosity. It's a question also of love and concern. And so Peter and John are nearly inseparable throughout the book of Acts. This is the background. You see, Peter and John are out in the temple. They are out seeking to preach the word of Christ, to tell people about the Lord Jesus, to minister to others. They have mission on the mind. They are not holed up in their homes. And what they then are about to see is the power of God in their midst. Real power, real miracle power. Peter and John are walking. They're seeking to go into the temple. They are about to climb the steps to go into a place past the lame man. And they begin to have this interaction with him. He calls out and he says, Please, alms for the poor. Or perhaps in our parlance, Brother, can you spare a buck? Can you spare a ten? I've got to eat, and I can't work. Could you please help? Rattle, rattle, rattle. And Peter does something that's very interesting. I want you to see how mission-minded Peter is and how focused on the power of God he is because he does something that I dare say it, very few of us do. What do you do when you're downtown and going through some building and there's someone in ragged clothes begging? If you're like me, you find another place to fix your eyes so you don't even need to see them as you walk by. You put your eyes down and you walk by. You see, because perhaps we don't have any money. We have credit cards now. Perhaps we don't want to pull out our wallet in a bad place in town. Perhaps we think to ourselves, he's just going to buy some whiskey with it. So we look, we avert our eyes, and we go on by. But Peter doesn't. 
And what makes it all the more remarkable is we know that Peter has no money to give. He's got every excuse not to pay attention. The disciples are living with things in common. They don't have a lot of money in savings accounts. Peter, when he had a job, was a fisherman. And now he's a full-time itinerant preacher. Can you imagine what that is like in the early days of the church? Let me tell you, that is not a wealth-making machine. And so, as he goes in, he does something very odd. He looks at this man. He directed his gaze. Now, this is not a glance. This word here is the same word that is used of the disciples as they look up into heaven, gazing after our Lord Jesus after his ascension. Peter is intent. Again, it's not a glance. It's a walking up and a looking. And he's trying to get the man's attention. Because not only does he look at him up and close, he draws even more attention to himself. He does something that none of us, I think, have ever done with a beggar. He says, look at us. Wow. People around are looking, what is, what is he doing? Why is he being so uncomfortable here? Doesn't he know this is not exactly what we do with beggars? You know, we look away and we toss a coin in the pot and we walk on. They have their place, we have our place. But not Peter. Peter draws complete attention. He says, look at me. Look at John. Look at us. And of course, this excites our lame man. He's got a hot one on the string. Someone who's not only looking at him, but wants him to look at them. And he thrusts the cup out even further. And he says, alms for the poor. Would you please give, sir? And you can almost imagine the smile on his face and the energy because he is expecting not only to get, but perhaps to get big. Now imagine his reaction. Here's a man who is hopelessly lame, has known nothing ever in his life but being unable to walk. And Peter looks at him. He draws his attention. And then he says, I don't have any money. What? What's the big deal? Imagine how he goes from euphoria to anger, frustration. You see, Peter takes him immediately out of the here and the now. He takes him immediately out of the material. He dashes any hopes that anything he is going to say is going to get him a few dollars. There's a lesson here for us. Do you use friendship for an ulterior purpose? Do you befriend someone not to be their friend, but hoping that you'll have an opportunity to witness to them? You see, there's a difference between witnessing to a friend and being a friend solely as a tool to witness. You see, Peter does not want to just take advantage of the situation. He wants to disabuse this lame man. He's not going to say, you know, if you believe in Jesus, I'll give you a fiber. And too often that's what passes for evangelism in America today. You know, if you believe in Jesus, I won't give you money, but God will give you a Cadillac. God will give you a perfect marriage. God will take care of all your money woes. It's a bribe. Peter will have none of this. He says, I don't have 
anything. Silver and gold have I none. In the old phrase. And we can imagine that this man is now disappointed and angered. Now, put yourself for a moment in the shoes, not of Peter, but of the lame man. Have you ever felt like that? Have you prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed for something? And God has said, silver and gold have I none. Not for you. Not now. You've prayed and prayed for healing. And God says, I don't have healing for you now. You've prayed and prayed for a godly spouse. And he says, I don't have one for you now. Do you feel disappointed? Disappointed with God. You see, this story should help us. It should help you. Because there are times when God says, there are certain things that are not for you now. But I have other things for you. I have better things. I have the things of the Lord Jesus Christ for you now. Don't shake your head. Don't drop your jaw in disappointment. Don't look down at the dust. Look at me. Continue to look at me. That's what God says to us. And then what begins to happen is this miracle power takes shape. And it's unexpected completely. Now ask yourself, this is the middle of the temple. How many beggars are there? Dozens? Hundreds? Many, many, many beggars. Why do Peter and John stop at this beggar? Why does Peter fix his gaze on this man? Why does he say, look at me, what is happening here? What is happening here is more than just two men walking by a beggar. It is an appointment with the Lord Jesus Christ. God in his providence is seizing this man. And the begging and the lameness and the alms are just incidental. God himself, in the person of Jesus Christ, through his servants, Peter and John, has a divine appointment with this man whose name we don't even know. It's an example of God's sovereignty. God chooses whom he will. We're not fit to say, why this beggar and not another? Why this hour of the day and not another? You see, God has his purposes. We're going to see more of these purposes in chapter 3 at the end and in chapter 4. This one incident with this one beggar will lead to yet more explosive growth in the church. But it is an example of God's sovereignty. But it's more than that. God is not just sovereign. God is also merciful. You see, this is an example of God's divine mercy. Coming to meet this lame man, this man without hope, perhaps his friends without hope. And he's bringing to use a fit phrase, beggars, to tell another beggar where they found food. Peter and John, to tell this man what Jesus has in store for him. So it is a completely unexpected miracle, but it is also a powerful miracle. This is not like the miracles of our day. Have you ever noticed that miracle healing are things like being cured of backache? I once saw a minister on television cast out a demon of not being able to smell. 
from a man. I'm not sure how that was verifiable. There's people who are cured from being overly tired, from chronic fatigue, or from chronic stomach pain. I haven't seen or heard any reports of a man growing another limb or being raised from the dead. But you see here, this miracle is powerful. This man was lame. And this is not as if I brought someone up here right now that none of you had ever met and I said, he can't walk. And now I'm going to tell him to walk. And you would look and say, well, I wonder if he really couldn't walk before. You see, this man had been lame from birth and everybody knew it. God picks the perfect kind of miracle. Everyone knew this man could not walk. He had been lame from birth. It wasn't like he had lost the ability to walk and could get it back. They were reminded of it every day when he was at the temple. There was no doubt that this man was lame. And Peter walks up to him, and in an instant, in a moment, he says, rise and walk. Does that remind you of anything? It's exactly what Jesus said to the paralytic. You see, Peter is merely working the works of Jesus. Jesus said he would in John 14, 12. He said, those who believe in me will do my works. And you see, just as Jesus did, his servant says, rise and walk. But you see, he does something that Jesus didn't. He says, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise and walk. Because Jesus is where the power comes from. But in doing this, this is more than about getting up and walking. You see, those who were around who would know the story of Jesus and the paralytic, it hadn't been but a year or two ago. They would know the story, and they would also know that Jesus said, I have the power to forgive sins. And so when Peter says, in the name of Jesus, rise and walk, the first thought of many is not, I'm so glad this man is healed. The first thought is, who is this upstart theologian pushing Jesus on us again? Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. All the time with the Jesus. Why? And the Pharisees would grumble and people would look at each other. Because you see, Peter was declaring that Jesus Christ was Lord. And the evidence of that would be the man as he stood up. You see, the name of Jesus is not a magic charm that you carry in your pocket. When the Bible says, whatsoever you pray in Jesus' name, you can't pray that Jesus would allow you to sin. You must pray in accordance with Jesus' character, with his virtue. And that's what Peter does. And this miracle is unexpected. It is powerful and also something else. It is complete. Do you notice that? Peter says, stand up and walk. Peter gives the man a command that is impossible for him to do. Do you know what that's like? I hope that you do. Because you see, I have given you commands that are impossible for you to do. Repent. Believe. It is absolutely impossible for any of us to do these things on our own. God must work repentance and faith in us. And just as he does that, he does in this man. It is a model of how God works. 
Augustine put it this way so succinctly. Lord, command whatever you will and give what you command. That should be the cry of our heart. Desiring God to be glorified in His commands. Not commanding according to our strength or our desires, but according to His will, relying upon Him to give the power. Is that how you pray big prayers? Lord, give me a future that I'm not sure I can handle. Make me a missionary. Make me a pastor. Make me the most godly father in the city. Make me a godly mother with godly children. I know I'm insufficient for this, Lord, but by your power, it can be done. That's the kind of prayers Peter and John prayed. And he gives this command. And so what happens is this healing is complete. What happens is his ankles are strengthened. His feet are strengthened. Luke, the doctor, tells us exactly what's going on. You get the feeling that if he thought we would understand the words sinews and tendons and muscle groups and all kinds of other Latin names for things that even I wouldn't know knowing Latin because I'm not a doctor. Luke is excited about this. He wants us to know this is real. This is not a sham. This is absolutely real power. There's an irony here, though. We'll see it next week. Peter has incredible power through the Lord Jesus Christ. He does something that none of us do. And it is that power that brings persecution. The power doesn't keep him safe. It actually brings on persecution, we'll see in chapter 4. Well, we've seen that Peter and John have a mission emphasis. They want to be out and in the community speaking Jesus' name. We've seen them experience miracle power by the power of Jesus Christ in the name of Jesus Christ. Why is all this happening? Is God doing this to relieve the pain and suffering of one poor beggar? If that's what you think, you don't know God. God has much bigger things on his mind. This is just a part of the piece of the puzzle. God is going to work a work here. And what he is going to do is show the lame man, show Peter and John, show all who are witnessing, and show you and me through the scriptures that the Messiah's kingdom has come. Can you imagine the scene here? He gets up, he stands, wobbles a bit, he straightens his knees, he starts to walk, perhaps he begins to skip in a manly sort of way, and then he starts to jump, and he starts to run, and he's bounding all over the place, and people are looking at him, and he's jumping and yelling, praising the Lord. Can you imagine that scene? Can you imagine if that happened right now, someone came through the door? We would all look. It would be interrupting what we were doing. That's what God's doing here. He's interrupting stayed temple worship that has rejected him. And he is showing his power. That his power is not in the worship of the temple. That he is the temple and that he will interrupt their lives to get their attention. He's showing that the gospel reduces all of us to a complete dependence on God. And in doing so, we find fulfillment. 
None of the man's friends were going to heal him. None of the priests were going to heal him. Only God could heal him. And you see, that's what the gospel does. And the observers here, well, quite frankly, they're struck dumb. It's almost as if they had never heard the sounds of praise before. They'd never heard the praise of God. It wasn't that he was just yelling about himself or he was yelling incoherently. We know from the text that he praised God. We know it several times, Luke tells us. And they are struck dumb with amazement and wonder. The word there for amazement is actually the word that we get ecstasy from. They're almost in a trance. Picture this scene. The man is jumping and bounding and praising and everybody else is going with their mouths open. God has everyone's attention. Just like he did in chapter 2. Do you remember? You see, this is an attention getter for what Peter is about to do and we will look at next week. Preach. Jesus Christ. But it's not just praise that we see going on here. There's also joy. And the joy reminds us of the kingdom of Jesus. Jesus' kingdom is a joyful kingdom. Again, you must imagine this somber assembly in the temple, dutifully coming in and praying, avoiding Roman soldiers. And God is the one who brings joy into the assembly. This is what he desires in his worship. Is that how you view worship? Now, I'm not asking you to run around, at least if, unless you're healed of not being able to walk. But we can show joy. It's, it's humorous. One of the things that makes me chuckle a little inside as a minister, and it happens several times a year, is someone will ask me if I mind if someone says amen during the sermon. As if somehow that's going to, I'm shooting free throws and it's going to throw me off my game. And my answer always is no. Worship should be a place of joy. It's also a place of order. We don't want everyone yelling amen all the time and no one knows what's going on. But it should be a place where when you hear God's word, when you sing God's word, when people offer up prayers that you are thrilled at heart. And even if, you are that wonderful form of Presbyterian that says, Amen, in your mind. Do it. Worship the Lord. And if you're the kind that every couple of weeks wants to let one rip, go right ahead. You won't throw me off my game. You see, worship should be joyful. That's what the kingdom of Jesus Christ is about. All our sins, all our sickness, all our illnesses will be gone. We will rejoice in the presence of the Lord. So if you come to worship sour and bitter, you've argued with your spouse on the way, the kids haven't behaved, leave it at the door. You would if you were going into a top flight business meeting, wouldn't you? Leave it at the door. Rest in the Lord. Worship Him. The kingdom of Jesus Christ, the Messiah's kingdom, is not only a kingdom of praise. It's not only a kingdom of joy. It is also a kingdom of restoration. 
You see, this sickness that this lame man had, this disability, is a result of sin. Now, it's not a result of a specific sin. John 9 tells us that. Remember who sinned? He or his parents? But it is a result of sin being in the world. The world is not as it should be. There should not be broken relationships. There should not be broken bones. There should not be death. It is unnatural. And Jesus is going to restore everything. He's not just going to save you from hell. He's going to restore all of your relationships, restore all of the world, restore all of death to life. This is what Jesus' kingdom is about. And you see, Jesus is not about just restoring the body, but he's also about restoring the soul. Because you see, this man doesn't just have legs that work. Now his mouth works, and he is praising the Lord. He has seen the power of Jesus of Nazareth. And this is the ultimate work of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's why in chapter 4, verse 4, we see that 5,000 are converted. Almost double what were converted at Pentecost. This is the sign that Jesus' kingdom has come. Now I imagine if some in the temple had ears to hear, and they knew their Bibles well, they would understand what was going on. Because you see, a thousand years before Peter entered that temple court, 3,000 years before we sat here, a man wrote this under inspiration of the Holy Spirit. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon, and they shall see the glory of the Lord. The majesty of our God. Strengthen the weak hands. And make firm the feeble's knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with a vengeance. And with the recompense of God, He will come and save you. This is the Messiah's kingdom. This is what Isaiah writes in Isaiah 35. And he ends with this. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. And then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. Do you see the lame man? Do you see him leap? Do you see him sing with joy? The kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ is here. It is not, beloved, something we wait for in sourness and sadness and despair. His kingdom is now, in your very midst. And you see it every time you hear someone speak of their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Their trust in Him and the way He has blessed them. This is the mission of our church to be out where the people are, to be out in the temple circuits and courts and gates, ready to preach Jesus, ready to bring the power of God's word that will change lives in a more fundamental way than changing the way someone walks. Are you prepared for this mission? Are you prepared to see what God will do by his mighty power? 
Are you prepared for the scores that God will bring into our midst? If you are, then we too can be an axe church. Seeing the Messiah's kingdom established. Let's pray.